is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, flood warnings remain active for catchments in the northern rivers and flash flooding is impacting many communities in the region. We'll get the latest from the SES shortly. And it's been a busy few days for livestock owners affected by that heavy rain and flooding in the Tweed Valley. Uh, so our property sort of has a little creek that runs through it um, as well as the Oxley River. So there's a little section out the back paddock where the cows got isolated on a little island and we were able to sort of hunt them into a neighbours and pull them out back to the road. But um, you're sort of losing the paddock slowly out here. We'll have uh, more about those uh, cow rescues shortly on the program and also uh, get some engineering news about the latest on the roads and the bridges and things like that as well in the region. Some concerns there as well. But before we do anything else, let's uh, get the latest from the SES about those flood warnings that remain active for catchments in the northern rivers. Also, concern about flash flooding and there's been about 28 or 29 rescues as well. Joining me now from the SES is Scott McClellan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? Very well. So, uh, fair to say that the situation is easing, but there are still concerns with flash flooding in some areas. That's that's correct. So, the situation, the weather system that flew in on Sunday afternoon that affected Coffs Harbour, then moved north and affected the Tweed Valley and places along the Northern Rivers. Uh, yesterday being New Year's Day and overnight into today. Whilst the weather has seemed to be relatively calm at the moment, there is potentials for further storms this afternoon. So you're watching that closely and you're obviously getting briefings from the Bureau as well and the Bureau is saying it's pretty hard to predict. It is. It's exceptionally unsettled at the moment and what's happening just across the border into South East Queensland could very easily come into the Northern Rivers and we have been issued this afternoon with a severe weather warning and the potential for thunderstorms possible this afternoon. And what rivers are you watching in particular? So we've got our eyes on the Wilsons River, uh, which peaked just below Minor at Lismore. We are watching closely the Richmond River, uh, Bungawalban and Korakai in particular. They may reach Minor later this afternoon or into tonight. And the Tweed River, so Tumbolgum uh, uh, reached moderate, um, just above Minor, into the almost moderate, but it's now dropped back into minor. But with this, with further rainfall predicted this afternoon and into tonight, uh, flash flooding is a very high possibility and a reality that we all have to live with, and that's where most of our flood rescues are actually coming from. Okay, so you're watching uh, communities like Tumbolgum, Korokai, also uh, uh, Mwilambar as well, I gather, just in and case. Kayagra. And Right, okay, just in case there is that flash flooding, which uh, with the river so high can be a bit of an issue pretty quickly. Yes, and now that the systems are all quite wet, they are very highly responsive. Mm. Now, the rescues have been nearly 30 rescues or so. I think there's one underway at the moment as we speak. Is it mainly people driving through um, water over the roads, things like that? Or, uh, you know, what, what are we seeing? The high number of them are actually people getting caught driving through causeways and culverts that are flooded or driving across flooded, uh, flooded bridges. Uh, we saw one of those outside of Kyogle yesterday afternoon. We are also seeing the, where people are camping. They're either being isolated and they're having to be rescued on those high flood islands, low flood islands, or we've got people that have been affected by landslips. 
Okay, so you've got a number of people out there at the moment, Christmas holidays, out there camping as well. So that yes. that'd be an issue too. And getting in t- contact with them may not always be that easy. It's one of the reasons why yesterday we made the decision to send out an emergency alert by text message just to advise people that it's raining. Not that they could look outside, but it's raining and just be aware that intense rainfall does lead to flash flooding and to make safe decisions. And I guess the thing is that uh, people that are unfamiliar with the area wouldn't necessarily know that, wouldn't necessarily know about that danger. Uh, Correct. But it's also farmers and the locals. It was okay yesterday when I went to check on the farm or check on the property, but it's not okay today. So that flash flooding just really depends on where the rain falls, where that flash flooding occurs. And you can't predict that, but it's just mindful that whenever we see water over the road, don't cross it. Yeah, and we also are hearing that uh, there are a number of um, cow rescues and things like that. So obviously there would be damage to, to farms, to pastured, dairy farms isolated, those sorts of things. And that will imagine, I guess that will uh, be an issue for uh, some time as well too. There's that. There's also the roads. So into Tiagra, uh, when Tiagum, Taugum. Into Talgum at the moment, there's a landslip, and we've got engineers from council currently trying to assess that road. But there's a lot of potholes that are now just expanding because people are driving over them and going faster, and the rain's not helping. The road conditions are exceptionally slippery at the moment, so we're just asking people, if it's any unnecessary travel, please reconsider your travel. And uh, I guess that if there are uh, farmers out there that are isolated or need assistance or whatever, they get in contact with uh, local land services or uh, Department of Primary Industries. Or even us, so 132500, so everyone finds themselves in need of assistance with regards to floods or storms, give us a call and we can put you in contact with the relevant department or come and assist you ourselves. Right, okay, so 132500, that might be the the best bet at the moment uh, by the sound of things. Scott, appreciate it. I understand that you've got a briefing oppressor coming up in a moment, so I'll uh, let you get away. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Scott McClellan from the from the State Emergency Service there. It's uh, coming up to 11 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Now, we were just uh, talking there about this. It's been a busy few days for livestock owners affected by the heavy rain and flooding in the Tweed va- Valley. Uh, the weather conditions have also caused significant damage to local roads, including two used to access Talgum west of Mwollombar. Melinda Blowfield, who lives a few kilometres from Talgum, along the Talgum Road, uh, she had to rescue an entire cattle herd of eight. Kim Honan spoke to her yesterday afternoon and asked how much rain she had recorded on her property. Well over 250, probably 260 even more of the rain. The rain gauges well and truly overflowed <laughs> several times. So, yeah, a lot of rain. And still raining? Still raining. No sign of it easing at the minute. And how long has it been since you've seen this amount of rainfall on, on your farm? Um, look, probably in 2017, we saw something a little bit similar, but um, back in 2008 was far worse out this way, yeah. And what sort of flooding have you seen on your property? Uh, so our property sort of has a little creek that runs through it, um, as well as the Oxley River. So there's a little section out the back paddock where the cows got isolated on a little island and we were able to sort of hunt them into a neighbour's and pull them out back to the road, but um, you're sort of losing the paddock slowly out here. And so you've had to move the, the cattle up to higher ground? Yeah, yeah, we've moved them up to the house yard. 
Were you concerned at all that you might lose them or were you were quick to sort yeah, of assess we were, the situation? Yeah, they ended up, um, they actually ended up sort of swimming a section of it. So that was a bit of a worry. They were swimming? Yeah, they were swimming through the creek section of the property. So it was a bit of a concern and they're only young um, young heifers and the little steer. So we're lucky that all eight are still standing. Yeah, so you call yourself a, a hobby farmer? How many head do you yeah, have? But we've just got eight here and at another property, at my in-law's property, we've got another eight there. So where you are now, Talgum Village or near Talgum, the, the village is isolated now because of um, previous damage and, you know, damage from this rainfall? Yeah, it is. So there's a section of road there up the Limpenwood Road, um, the Limpenwood Bridge, where it's totally, the bridge is washed away, I believe, that I've seen the photos. And then also just up the road from us on Talgum Road, the gates have been closed on that major landslip that happened in 2022. So... There's no way in or out for some time, I'd say. Yeah, and so, I mean, how long was it going to take for them to to fix the Talgum Road there? Well, the Talgum Slip's been going now. There's just been a temporary fix in place. Um, They repaired the minor slip, um, the closest one to the village, and then the major slip, um, they've put in a temporary road. But obviously there's big gates up there now that have shut because it could become potential risk of it slipping again. And that the Limpen Wood um, Road along there, where that the bridge is, there's a massive crack in the road there now. Is that right? There is, yes, yep, and a fair bit of debris and trees and all sorts happening up in that valley as well. They've copped, I think, more rain than us. Yeah, so you can't get in or out at the moment. No, no, I don't think for some time. Talking about the situation in uh, Talgum, that was Melinda Blowfield from the Tweed Valley. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's coming up to a quarter past 12 while staying with the uh, flood issues. And um, on the uh, far north coast and to a dairy farm now, though, that has recorded, in fact, in excess of 400 millimetres over the last few days. Uh, Warning View Holsteins at Talgum Creek is now hoping that either Talgum Road or Limpenwood Road reopens to allow some milk tanker access because they've been cut off. Kim Honan spoke to Nisha Davis earlier this morning about the last few days of this wild weather. Yeah, well, we were completely cut off yesterday. So um, both ways, Moolambar, were closed due to damage to roads and they closed the original slip that happened on Talgum Road two years ago so yeah it was a bit of a um (laughs) I don't know we're we're better um positioned this time I think we're just ready for it and weren't too worried to be quite honest yeah so what sort of preparations did you make this time well we've got our um 7,000 litre vat up and running like ready so we can hold the milk because the tanker couldn't come, obviously, last night. So we're better prepared in that way. Like, we didn't have to tip any milk out. And so, well, I don't know what roads are like this morning, obviously, but our bridge is clear. So hopefully the tanker will come today. And so did you install the 7,000-litre vat after the 2022 floods? We had already had it there, but it wasn't um, functional. But So we just made sure it was, you know, ready to go with all the cooling uh, systems required so yeah so how many milkings will it hold now we'll get another you know like we can fit at least four to five more milkings in there but i'm not 100 percent sure with norco like how long we can keep milk so yeah 
So this will be our fifth milking without a pickup this morning. Yeah, right. So with Talgum yeah. and Limpenwood Roads both closed, are you aware? Have you spoken to council? Do you know when either of them will reopen? I have not. I don't know. We just follow the community pages are pretty um, good. People are constantly updating things on there. So we're just kind of watching that all yesterday, seeing what was going on out there. So there's no other way the tanker can get in? No. No, both roads are gone and, yeah. So what option will you have? Well, I don't really know, to be honest, unless we, until we talk to council and, and or see, you know, like I'm not sure. I mean, I if it rained all night, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I was asleep. So um, hopefully all the floodwaters have receded and the road will be okay underneath all that. Yeah. So you're hoping that um, at least one of the roads does reopen yeah. so you won't have to tip out any milk? Yeah, that's right. Could that be a real possibility? I mean, I've seen the, the crack in the road along Limpen Wood um, Road and they still need to assess, I guess, any damage that's been done at um, that Talgum landslip um, area. Right. Yeah, and whether that, you know, whether they'll come today, who knows, really, without um, contacting them. We're, yeah, we haven't heard. So, yes, it is a real possibility. We'll have to sit some out. Um, but... That kind of goes, I mean, it's unfortunate, obviously, but sometimes that happens with a natural disaster. Mm, but business as usual, the cows still need to be milked. That's right, yes. The girls still have to come in and be milked. They uh, like to come in the shed and get out of the rain, I think. So, yeah. And um, have you had a chance to measure just how much rainfall you've had at the property at Talgum Creek? We have had a little bit over 400 mils since. Sunday night, yeah. And are you seeing any yeah. sort of flood damage on your property on the lower parts on the river flats? Uh, not at this stage because it didn't really, like our, although our bridge was over, um, it hasn't come into the paddock too much, a little bit. We did probably lose perhaps some sorghum that was in one of the paddocks closest to the creek, like the Oxley River. But other than that, I think... So far, it looks like we'll be all right, yeah. So what sort of impact do you think uh, these two roads being closed will have on the village of Talgum and, you know, those surrounding it further upstream as well? I think everybody was very nervous, um, anxious, sort of like, here we go again, sort of feeling. Um, Yeah, I know that there were people who needed to get into town for medical reasons and were worried about that, yeah. Um, they opened the hall yesterday for an emergency centre for anyone who needed to go there, so that's good. And SES has been communicating with people, so hopefully it's just not as bad yeah. as 2022 uh, and people can get back to town today. Yeah, and Nisha, is it still raining there? No, currently no rain, but cloudy skies, that's for sure. Nisha Davis from Warning View Holsteins at uh, Talgum Creek in the in the Tweed Valley. Now the Tweed Valley Shire has been contacted for comment. A post on its Facebook page says an extreme landslide landslide sites on the Talgum Road and the automatic gates at the temporary pass have been acti- activated and will remain shut until further notice. Uh, hoping there'll be some activity today. And just on that, we've just uh, got some information from the Tweed Shire Council that's just come through saying that both the Talgum Road and the Limpenwood Road are being assessed and they could be open as early as later on today. For the latest on that, the Director of Engineering, David Oxenham, spoke uh, just uh, a few minutes ago 
to Kim Honan about the situation with those roads and whether they might be opened. Yeah, not a great start to the year. Um, just some of the hinterland areas are probably the areas that have been most impacted. So Limpenwood Road, there's some damage to Hoppingdix Creek uh, Bridge, a lot of debris on it, uh, and the approach slab is, uh, has been dislodged, so we have crews in there at the moment um, assessing that. Um, and then there was a number of inundated causeways and bridges and the like, so a lot of debris on, on roads and a, and a few minor slips, but we haven't actually got the full reports of damage in at the moment, um, and uh, the crews are out there at the moment assessing that and cutting tracks through to make sure that people can get through the main access routes in the Shire. So how soon do you think Limpenwood Road will be reopened? Well, we're hoping that in the next couple of hours we can get a temporary track through there. There's, um, there's quite a large concrete slab that uh, is an approach slab just before the bridge that's been totally dislodged, so we want to cut that up. It'll take a while to cut it up and move it off the road, and then we'll throw some uh, some road gravel in and get a um, get a track to the bridge. Um, there's a lot of debris on the bridge as well. Um, that's being removed. A lot of that's being pushed to the side. So, um, yeah, we're hoping in the next couple of hours we'll be able to get the, um, get the track reopened, the road reopened. So will that be passable just for smaller vehicles or also trucks? Yeah, it should be passable. It'll be passable for all vehicles. The other issue is that the Talgum Road heading into Talgum with Limpenwood Road closed as well as Talgum Road uh, residents at Talgum and Talgum Creek have, are now isolated. Is that still the case? Uh, not at the moment. Bill Creek Road is open, it's passable, but probably not by trucks. Um, certainly smaller vehicles can go through. What road, sir? Bill, Bill Creek Road connects, um, yeah, connects, connects Talgum into Ukai and Kygal. That road is passable. That's a very long way around. It is a long way around, yeah, and it's gravel. A lot of it's gravel. Talgum Road, the main slip at Talgum Road is closed. It's, um, it's, 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 it's an active slip, which we cut a temporary track through um, at the end of last year, and that's been monitored by geotechnical engineers. Um, but we've closed it for precautionary reasons. We don't believe it's moved too much with this rain event. And, um, yeah, so we're hoping to get that assessed pretty soon in the next few few hours so it can be it can be reopened mm. um, there have been vehicles passing through it um, but it's now officially closed um, and uh, but we are letting letting emergency vehicles go through under es- escort could talcum road be possibly open today at that uh, landslide landslip site yeah correct so we're hoping that we can get it assessed relatively quickly today um, and and get the road get the road reopened that's the Tweed Shire Council Director of Engineering, David Oxingham, saying that those roads are hoping to get them open. Maybe the Talgum Road, the Limpenwood Road could be open open today. Later on today, they're being assessed at the moment as we speak. It's uh, 24 minutes past 12, and uh, we've got a text in from... Uh, uh, Peter, who's texted in, is at Midgen Flat near Byron, and he said they've been lucky to have avoided all the rain. They've only had 10 millimetres at the uh, macadamia nut farm they've got there. In fact, they've, they've had uh, 1,479 uh, mill, uh, millimetres for, for 2023. as compared to uh, 3,490 millimetres in 2022. So uh, he's uh, pleased that they've only had the 10 millimetres and avoided the flooding. And just James has texted in uh, to ask a question. Whatever happened to the Weather Bureau's prediction of a longer, drier, hotter summer? Listening to the program today and over the last month or so, and again, the exact opposite has occurred. Uh, it was all doom and gloom a few months ago. 
uh, with a super El Nino being predictable, James. That's right. That was what they were predicting. They were predicting a super El Nino. And uh, in fact, about a month ago, though, they did change their long-term forecast, which we reported on the program for the three-monthly. They uh, they were saying that it was a milder El Nino than had been expected, and they pulled back a bit. About a month ago, six weeks ago, on the on the forecast, uh, which we reported on, saying that uh, they were uh, pulling back a bit on that, uh, the idea that it was uh, going to be long, dry, and hot because the El Nino was uh, not as strong as uh, they, they had been thinking that it might be. So that's that's what happens. Things happen. The weather changes. James, it's uh, coming up to uh, twenty six minutes past twelve. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We're staying with the weather and farmers in the drought declared Upper Hunter are welcoming in the new year with a bit of renewed hope. Thanks to that recent rain, parts of the region received more than 90 millimetres in December. Reporter Romy Stevens spoke to Mary War farmer Cassandra McLaren to find out how conditions are looking at the moment. November and December, we've had 164 mils. We tallied up yesterday our total for the year, which is more than 40%. So at the end of October, we were only looking at 235 mils and things were very bleak and very brown. And um, so our total of 399.5 mils for the year is amazing. Still very short of our average rainfall, which our 20-year average is about 605 mils. But the difference out here is amazing. How are you feeling now that we've started the new year with that total? Oh, look, it's a lot of hope. Um, Hope is an amazing thing because it helps you look forward to the future. But when we were being told there'd be no rain till the end of summer and it was a very bleak outlook, now that we've had the rain and obviously we're very much hoping that it continues so that we get a great start to the year, it's certainly changed our direction. We're still having to manage our stock as far as feeding, but we're not feeding every day like we were, and now there is grass for them to eat. It's just managing that, so it's just amazing to be able to look to a more positive farming outlook for the for the near future. Would you say the drought's broken in that area, or is there still quite a way to go? Considering we're under our average rainfall, I think the times are still pretty concerning because we, you know, the original outlook was February for rains, but we typically get summer storms, so you know that's good. They're coming, so that's a bit more in the normal pattern. I think in general the area is looking a lot better than it was. Not everybody has reached those sort of rainfalls I know in our area because there have been summer storms and they're patchy, so everyone's still hopeful that when the rain is about that we do get under it. Yeah, what are some of your fellow farmers saying about the totals that they've received? I haven't had much chance to catch up with too many, but I did notice on the local Facebook page from in town that they'd received only about 365 mils for the year. So that's a good inch down on what we've had. So um, it will be interesting over the coming days just to see how much the greater district has had and how varied that is. Fellow Mary War farmer Ron Campbell received more than 70 millimetres during the last couple of months of 2023. We would like more rain, but it's only been a limited amount of rain. But of course, um, Mother Nature always responds to whatever rain that is that comes. There have been uh, good falls around in various areas, but it's only a very narrow strip. I understand that up underneath the range, which 
which is north of, of where our farm is. They had 50 mils or 52 mils here out of this last fall. But being storm rain, it just means that if you're under that storm, all good. However, it's not a general generalisation of rain. This last rain, I think most people in the area got varying uh, amounts of, of rain. Uh, just depends on where they are. So I, I guess it sort of benefits. There is a green greenness about it, but we haven't got the bulk of feed that we would really like, and that comes when you have uh, a good fall and follow-up rains. How are you feeling about the drought and the outlook this time of year compared to, say, the start or mid last year? Yeah, look, it was pretty dire last year, but because of the fact that we've um, we've now got to look at the fact of what stock can be sold, how can we get those stock into saleable condition? Some of them, are, some of the cows have taken it pretty badly during the dry time. So I guess that there there has been a break in the weather, which is 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 very good, which I think is is, is pleasing. When you have one of those very bad droughts, and this has been a pretty tough season too. You get no cloud and no rain, whereas this time there has been some cloud and some rain, which I think is is a positive um, sign. How are you feeling for the outlook the next few months? Will rain be pretty crucial for you? Look, it is too. It just becomes very crucial when you come into February, March. If you don't get rains then, that's generally the time that you you want to plant uh, some fodder feed for the livestock. And that report uh, about what's happening in Mary War with the, uh, the, the the rain there was uh, put together by Romy Stevens. The rain in the Upper Hunter there, uh, pretty welcome after what has been uh, pretty dry several months. It's uh, coming up to uh, twenty nine minutes to one here on the Country Hour. ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to the Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. We're talking about the weather. Let's get the latest from the Bureau. Dylan Bird joins us now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? Very well. So all eyes still on the north coast and concerns. Mm. I, get, I gather that uh, you know might see some of those storms, uh, some of those thunderstorms sneak over the border from Queensland and come back down and cause some issues with flash flooding. So you're watching it pretty closely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's what's on the forecast. It still remains a risk, although um, it doesn't look um, as likely as it has over the last 48 hours. Um, and yeah, as we said, we've seen some pretty uh, um, heavy totals there. Um, so places like uh, Numban Bar and Limpin Wood seeing in excess of 220 millimetres um, over the last 24-hour period, um, which is quite huge. And uh, many areas receiving over 100 millimetres, um, particularly over those like uh, slightly inland um, uh, areas on the border of uh, New South Wales and uh, Queensland. But yeah, um, at the moment, uh, looking at the satellite, um, I can only see a few thunderstorms uh, to northern part, well, the northern parts of southeast Queensland um, and some showers um, moving through. But uh, yeah, not really a lot in the last three hours with um, some rainfall only really reaching up to maybe five or six millimetres um, along the northern rivers there. So um, yeah. Not expecting as higher totals, but yeah, it's still uh, still a possibility. If and any severe thunderstorms, and, and I guess the thing is that the catchment's wet, so any rain will just go straight into the rivers or and cause the flash flooding. So that that's the issue there, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is a, a risk of the riverine flooding, um, mm. but um, I don't think we'll see um, 
a huge uh, change to the riverine flooding, apart from it really easing over the next uh, 24 hours. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess flash flooding um, in, at any location, uh, river or otherwise, um, is still a risk. But yeah, as I said, it does look like an easing trend uh, later um, in, into this evening into uh, Wednesday, which is uh, great news. Okay, fingers crossed, because some people are reporting, you know, uh, on their on individual farms up to 400 millimetres from various events. So, you know, like it to be dry it, for a while. It's, it's definitely massive, and um, it, it doesn't help that the models really weren't really picking it, particularly all the way up to uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and, but then the next day, they all corrected <laughs> once the um, observations were ingested into the system. So, yeah, just one of those difficult ones with the um, slow-moving severe thunderstorms all just piling on at the exact same time. But, um, um, yeah, because it was sort of held up by a, a, um, a system off the coast, and then that pushed the moisture down into New South Wales when that wasn't expected. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, all the forecasts um, from all the different models that, that we had on, on hand throughout the world uh, really did suggest that the uh, coastal trough was going to be a bit further um, offshore um, and that the uh, severe thunderstorm response was not necessarily going to bring us that strong of a storm. Um, sorry, that's uh, yeah, strong of a heavy rainfall risk. So, yeah, d- definitely I, I would call that a misadvent. Um, it's just one of those things where uh, there's quite a bit of uncertainty in the forecast with the severe thunderstorm. So, yeah, um, which is why we always harp on about um, monitoring the warnings and uh, watching the updates to the, to the uh, forecast. Because things change pretty quickly. They can, they can, particularly with any severe thunderstorm. Now, the chance of some uh, thunderstorms or some storm activity for the inland, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we've already seen um, a nice line of storms uh, moving through uh, like Ivanhoe and a line from Ivanhoe all the way down to uh, the Victorian border. Um, so lots of storms uh, through Riverina already. Um, we can see uh, in the models uh, that... Uh, more thunderstorms are likely through the afternoon and broadly over um, the southern interior and then perhaps reaching as well all the way to, say, the um, southern and central slopes um, and even over uh, the ACT in Canberra today. Uh, so, yeah, just um, our eyes peeled over that area and we're just looking at um, moderate rainfalls or light to moderate, so looking at somewhere between maybe um, 10 to 15 millimetres broadly over the southern most parts of uh, New South Wales. Um, but we could see up anywhere upwards of like maybe twenty to thirty millimeters in a severe thunderstorm. Okay, so you, so it could be you know uh, uh, a sort of background figure of five to ten, but um, could be pushed up a bit if you're under a storm. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And yeah, and those and those severe storms also bring a risk of damaging wind gusts, potential for large hail over two centimeters, and uh, also um, localized heavy rainfall. But that's just what we were talking about just then. Yeah, and how long is this system going to last for? I mean, then yeah. and then what happens? That's always the question. So um, we have um, a surface trough that's moving uh, further east, so that risk shifts further from uh, the Riverina area to the to the eastern parts of the Riverina, over central Tablelands, southern Tablelands, um, and over the ACT and uh, southern ranges. That's on Wednesday. And then um, on Thursday, it looks like um, a low sort of develops off the southern um, Tasman Sea. And with that, we see a southerly change push up uh, the coast and the inland. Um, So cooling things off, slightly stabilizing things, but we're getting um, a bit more of a stronger sort of uh, constant coastal shower response over the east coast from Thursday, um, and then that moves further north on Friday. But yeah, we could see um, a severe thunderstorm risk over, again, central inland, 
um, to the far west and over central and um, central uh, ranges as well, including uh, the Illawarra, Blue Mountains and uh, Lower Hunter. That's Thursday. But not expect any more rain or those thunderstorms for the north coast again? Um, so we do have a risk of um, isolated um, thunderstorms from Wednesday onwards, um, but yet not looking uh, severe at this point. Okay, all right. Well, uh, and uh, fine for the cricket tomorrow? Uh, fine for the cricket is always a good question. Yeah, um, actually, tomorrow looks like the best day for it, um, considering uh, how it's been recently. Um, looks like uh, we should have um, mostly clear skies or, or partly cloudy at times. But, um, yeah, it looks like from Thursday onwards it could be a bit wet again. Okay, all right. Well, we'll uh, watch that with interest as well. Uh, Dylan, thanks for that. No worries. Okay, have a good one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, our next story really is about to go full circle. It started with an academic burying his undies in the soil, but it's hoped it could be a game changer for the textile industry to reduce and recycle old clothes. Our reporter, Amelia Bernasconi, spoke to a few people in the game to see how successful the cotton composting issue has been. Well, in a world of fast fashion, a focus on the end product is now more important than ever. Australians buy nearly 15 kilos of new clothes each year. But I wonder if you've given much thought to what happens once those clothes become old and they leave your cupboard. Well, trials have been underway to see if returning cotton garments back to the paddock can improve soil health. Gundawindi Cotton's chief executive, Sam Colton, has been the man on the ground. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Amelia. Meredith Connerty is the Acting General Manager with Cotton Research Development Corporation and has been by Sam's side. She's also here. Hello. Hi, Amelia. And also navigating this trial has been Brooke Summers, the lead of the Cotton to Market program with Cotton Australia. Good afternoon to you as well, Brooke. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here, taking some time out today to have a look at these trials. But firstly, can we step back and maybe, um, Meredith, did you want to jump in here and paint the picture of Australia's involvement in fast fashion? I mean, how much clothing waste are we actually generating? Sure. Look, it's it's a big problem and it's probably a problem that is kind of out of sight, out of mind for many of us. I think on average, the estimate is we produce about 23 to 27 kilos of textile waste per person in Australia, which makes us one of the largest generators of textile waste in the world. Uh, And a lot of that goes to landfill. Very small amounts are recycled or repurposed into other things, which is a problem that um, we're a part of because we're part of the textile supply chain, but I think it's starting to affect all of us more and more. Mm, I think everyone's getting more conscious about what they do. And these trials you've been doing really is full circle. Sam, I understand you've been sort of dabbling in this composting concept for a number of decades. What what started that idea to put the fibres back in the ground? Well, I suppose it's um, it's the end of the uh, cycle um, that we've been looking for. And you'll find that the, uh, the farming industry's always been adapting and changing. And, um, you know, we've been able to produce food and fibre quite successfully. And we've uh, been able to lift our yields uh, on a per hectare basis over the, over the years. And um, uh, we've, uh, you know, by water use and that type of thing and, you know, more efficiency. Uh, and I suppose it's the last part of, uh, of the whole uh, 
sustainability cycle that we have as farmers is we have to uh, uh, get it back in the soil where it originally came from. And I think it's, uh, it, it feels good. You know, I mean, it's mm. uh, great. Mm. It's not just tossing your T-shirts back in the paddock, though. What's that process like? You're shredding it down. Um, yeah, talk me through what it actually all looks like as you go through this process. Well, it's um, um, it, from the T-shirt, uh, we put it through a, a shredder. Uh, that shreds it up into a finer um, uh, garment, a bit like uh, uh, yeah, a large fairy floss, I suppose. And um, um, you uh, put it, uh, compact it, and then put it into a uh, manure spreader and spread it out across your fields and then um, use a, a, a set of discs to put it back in the ground uh, to cover it uh, before we plant. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, it works quite well, and I mean, within four or five months, the uh, products uh, has gone. Um, the, um, <laughs> the good nutrients in the soil have been able to get in there and eat it all, and it's um, it's finished with. So it's it's a fantastic uh, thing to be involved in. So, what time do you sort of put it in the ground? Is that four or five months before you plant, or have you been sort of well, trial and erroring that? <laughs> Yeah, we have been, um, but it started off uh, originally with um, Oliver Knox from the University of Armidale, and he got his underpants caught uh, one day um, out in the paddock, so he decided to bury them and uh, end up uh, came back a couple of months later to pick them up and found that there was only the uh, uh, the elastic there, and uh, uh, he found the microbes had eaten it all, and then hence. Um, you know, he was talking to myself and we were talking about it and, and said, well, why don't we start, uh, you know, start using a lot of other, uh, you know, T-shirts, sheets and those types of things and, and away it went from me. Yeah, so what have you been finding in terms of the, yeah, microbial activity and all the good things in the soil? How are you testing that? Well, uh, the university's doing that for us. We're finding more microbes. Uh, we're finding the soil is healthier. Uh, we're finding that in while the uh, cotton or the crops are growing, uh, just after we planted, uh, we, we're retaining a lot more moisture because um, cotton will hold uh, sort of ninety percent of its weight uh, in water. So we've been able to uh, help on that side uh, to hold you know, hold more water in the soil. Yeah, wow. I want to bring in Brooke um, with Cotton Australia now because we we hear these discussions all the time, but off the back of COP28, of course, the Global Climate Conference recently, Australia's greenhouse gas emissions have been back in the spotlight and we often see our leaders looking to agriculture to help them meet our reductions targets. How big of a game changer do you think this could be in that space, Brooke? Well, I guess that's what the research, um, one of the research projects that the Cotton Research and Development Corporation is looking at, that's sort of the total picture for carbon capture and storage by returning this type of material into the farming system. And we know that brands obviously are looking for solutions and cotton farming is in scope three of their emissions. Um, We know we're a very small contributor to emissions um, in, in Australia and we're a small contributor in agriculture as well, but we still feel like we need to do our bit. Um, and certainly the brand partners that we're working with, we've got 40 or so brand partners um, where this, this issue of textile waste has become really, really critical um, to their sustainability journeys. And we really want to make sure that we can be part of the solution for that. And I think the thing that really impressed me when we uh, did that first trial at, at SANS is the scalability of this 
solution. Now, obviously, we don't want to be taking um, garments that are brand new garments and putting them back into a farming system. These are these, this, this solution is for garments that are absolutely at their end of life and there's nowhere else to put them. So things like you know underwear and and those sorts of things you can't give the Vinnies or the Salvos who are doing a great job in taking a lot of this textile waste and sorting mm-hmm. it and rehoming it. Um, you know the the agriculture system has got a huge role to play in circularity and the scalability of this solution is phenomenal. Yeah, how have you managed to replicate that? Because as much as we love the idea of the cotton garments coming back to a cotton farm, I mean, soil's soil, so it could be going to to other grain properties or or elsewhere, you know, other enterprises. Absolutely, and the vision for the circularity project from an industry perspective is to build circularity, cotton circularity hubs in regional communities that create employment and may house a number of solutions for textile waste within that facility uh, um, and the ability to share that with all of agriculture in those regional communities. And part of the research that CRDC is doing is looking at some of those business models and the logistics and all of those other things that have to go alongside a pretty simple solution at the end of the day. But there are other solutions out there and we want to be um, part of all of that and part of um, a way of delivering this on this challenge for our brand partners that support us and buy Australian cotton and put that into their beautiful cotton clothing. Yeah, I mean, that's huge, isn't it? When consumers are really leading that charge that they want sustainable products, it's it's really no surprise that you've got, what did you say, 40-plus brands on board? That's right, and, um, and they're really solidly supporting Australian cotton farmers by sourcing their fibres into the product and then calling it out to consumers. And a lot of when we talk to these brands, what they're really focused on is our sustainability message. They, they love supporting regional Australia and uh, regional agricultural industries. They also love that concept. But a big part of it is our sustainability um, credentials. You, you know, we've been able to reduce our pesticide use by 97%, improve our water use efficiency by over 50% in the last 20 years. And being part of that circularity story is also really critical for brands. I mean, most of them now have... Uh, a strategy around textile waste, how to reduce um, their and, and reduce their inputs to start with, but then what to do with that and take responsibility for those products at, at end of life once we've, we're done with them. Yeah, you mentioned the, the pesticide reduction, and I think Sam touched on, of course, you've had major water efic- efficiency mm-hmm. um, gains in the last even 10 years, let alone longer than that. But what's the perception like, do you think, with consumers? Do they understand how sustainably cotton is farmed? Are there any issues there with yeah, what the consumer's perception is? Look, I think there's still definitely a gap between the reality of what goes on in our farming systems and consumer perceptions, but I think we're, we're slowly closing that gap. And I think our, partners, um, our partnerships with our brands has actually really helped us do that because Cotton Australia, at the end of the day, we're a small not-for-profit company. We're funded by the farmers and we don't have a lot of money to spend on marketing to consumers. So through partnerships like, you know, the Biodiversity Project with Country Road, for example, and this amazing partnership with Sheridan, they're able to talk to millions of their consumers about our story and really connect the farming with the end consumer. And I think there's something really powerful that happens when we can do that and really bring those stories to life about what's really going on in our agricultural communities and on our farms as well. You're hearing this afternoon from Brooke Summers from Cotton Australia, also Meredith Connerty from the Cotton Research Development Corporation and Sam Colton, the Chief Executive of Gundawindi Cotton. Meredith, I just wanted to come back to you on that emissions uh, targets. Of course, this you know each state has their own, Australia has their own. 
What does CRDC have goals in mind with this project? Look, part of this project is, like Brooke was saying, um, textile waste is, is a part of the whole um, emissions from the whole textile sector. What we want to do is offer a way for governments, for local councils, for whoever, to um, use composting as a way to reduce textile waste in their landfill. But we also want to offer brands a way to reduce the overall impact of the garments that they're producing. And for us, that's important because we're producing the cotton that goes into those garments in the first place. So part of the really important research that we're funding and that we're doing is not just showing that we can compost textile waste and we can process it effectively and we can enhance soil health, but also that we can come up with a way to process um, the textile waste that overall reduces the emissions that come from um, the end of life of that garment. So what we're doing um, in partnership with a few different universities around Australia, with um, with UNE, with UTS and with RMIT in Melbourne, um, is looking at the greenhouse gas emissions from lots of different methods of processing textile waste. So from landfill, from directly adding it to the soil like Sam's doing on his farm, but we're also looking at biological breakdown at using enzymes to break down um, the textile waste, at using biochar, at using worm farming. We're open to every solution and we want to find the one that reduces the emissions profile of that um, garment overall, but also that produces a really high quality compost that cotton growers can put back onto their farm. How far away do you think we are from this being, you know, second nature and just being able to be used in this way? Yeah, look, I think Sam would say he'll take as much textile waste as you can give him and put it straight onto his field. Um, That's but what we're looking at is um, we're looking at not just what Sam's doing, which is just shredding it and putting it onto the field, but um, one of the key kind of barriers to making that happen is just logistics, is moving the textile waste from the centres where mostly it's created, which are in the major cities around Australia. It's about getting it back out to the farm and processing it in a way that makes it efficient for farmers to put out so theoretically, we can absorb as much textile waste as anyone could create, but realistically, we have to do this work to understand the logistics pathways and the business models for transferring that from one place to the other. And that research should be completed within the next six months. We should have a really good idea of where our hubs could be and where our processing centres could be. And in our strategic plan for CRDC, but also our um, strategic plan across the industry that Brooke was kind of talking about, we would like to see within the next five years, so before 2028, really, we'd like to see a solution that we can scale up and we can actually make this work across definitely the cotton-growing regions but across Australia as well. Can I jump in there too, just Mary, just to add to your comments about some of the challenges because logistics yeah. is one, but another key one is the blending of fibres. So one of the technical challenges we have is that we know we don't want to put synthetic fibres out into our farming system. You know, polyesters and those sorts of fibres that just never break down or take 600 years to break down. We absolutely don't want those in the system. So we also have to find ways to dismantle garments to take out the, the synthetic seams, for example, tags, zippers, buttons, and, and deal with those blends before we'll be able to see any kind of scalability. And a lot of those products, you know, when you think about it, what's in your wardrobe isn't just all cotton. If it was, we'd be able to deal with it immediately almost. Um, sure. but, but one of the challenges is the synthetic fibre um, industry, you're really taking a bigger market share every single year and what we do with those fibres that just will never break down in landfill or anywhere. 
Yeah, that's a huge challenge in itself. Uh, Brooke, thank you for jumping in there. I, sp- I suppose for people on the land that are thinking whether this could be an option for them, I mean, Sam, like you said, you've had great success in making your soil more healthy. I, I mean, is there, we talk so much about carbon farming and credits and things. Is that the path that you're on on your property or is it uh, with this element of the project, you're just focused on having healthy soil and having healthy, luscious crops? Well, the first thing we try to do, uh, we're doing is wondering, um, uh, testing to see if the dyes that are used in the garments uh, uh, um, you know, are going to be detrimental to our soils, and I think we've overcome that um, as at the moment. Um, the first thing we took off to do was it wasn't carbon it, we were chasing. It was um, to, to finish the cycle, to get rid of the rubbish. That's what we were after, and I think mm. that's the main thing that's got to happen first. Um, carbon seems to be on everybody's lips at the moment, um, but we have to. Uh, I think if you clean up your rubbish first, that will uh, you know, help the carbon side of things dramatically. Mm. And and I'll just add. Look, I think that carbon um, adding carbon to the soil is a great kind of byproduct of this process. So, like Sam was saying, he's doing it really um, to to deal with the waste problem, and that's really how we're approaching it. Um, any kind of long-term carbon benefits, probably we haven't been able to define what they exactly look like yet. That we would like to do that, but we're kind of thinking about that as a, a secondary benefit overall, not the primary aim of the project. Mm. Yeah. And there'll be others we hope as well. We Hopefully, yeah. as, we, as we unveil all of these solutions and roll them out at scale, we will see a range of other benefits that we haven't even thought of yet. That was Brooke Summers, the lead for the Cotton to Market program with Cotton Australia, ending that discussion on the Cotton Circularity Project, and uh, that was put together by Amelia Bernasconi. Six minutes to one on the country hour. Uh, getting a few texts here on uh, the weather. Uh, Rod's texted in to say, Happy New Year. 15 millimetres west of Lake Jellico, wild in the town. It uh, blew some of the roof off the pub, says Rod. And uh, Greg's texting in from Ningen to say climate change is definitely taking hold with all this unpredictable extreme weather. We're lucky that we have some uh, good functioning emergency services, says uh, Greg. It's five to one on the country hour. Well, uh, here's a story that has implications for us here in New South Wales because Victoria's native timber harvesters have shut down their equipment as the industries come to an official end at the close of 2023. After Supreme Court orders limited the areas available for logging, the industry's end date was brought forward by the state government from 2030. It's left many scrambling to find alternative work, with some contractors starting anew after decades in the industry. Natasha Shapova has this report. I worked very hard to get my business to where it is now and I wanted to build that for my family. Now we've got to take another pathway and I've got to start again. Warren Fenner is a contractor based in East Gippsland's Orbost, operating out of Club Terrace. He's worked in the timber industry his whole life, along with multiple generations of his family. But today is the end of an era. In November 2022, Supreme Court orders limited the area available for logging and expanded protected areas after it found the state-owned logging agency Vic Forests failed to adequately protect the yellow-bellied glider and the endangered greater glider. The Victorian government then brought forward the ban on native timber harvesting from 2030 to today. But since the final announcement of closing the industry down, we had a bit of a scale back dramatically. and We're back down to three full-time workers and two truck drivers.
One went to Tasmania, one went to Singleton as heavy haulage driver, one went to Bendigo to work on civil construction, and yeah, the rest have been, haven't got any work. As court orders drastically reduced Mr Fenner's capabilities, he's had to pivot his business away from timber harvesting. We're still stranded with our large equipment to do native hardwood logging and we've started to pursue a pathway forwards in vegetation management. But Mr Fenner is concerned working in vegetation management could be short-lived. I'm worried about the same regulations and rules that stopped us from being in the hardwood timber industry could possibly stop the government being able to do any vegetation management. The Victorian government has established a forestry transition program to support businesses, workers and communities to transition out of native timber. But for a town like Orbost, which is largely made up of timber workers, locals are now concerned for its future, as many may have to move away for new job opportunities. Gary Squires is the secretary of Orbost's Chamber of Commerce and says the timber industry constituted about a quarter of the town's full-time jobs. So that's very significant in a town. It's it's over 100 jobs impacted directly and then there's the flow-on effects. So that that has a big impact on our sporting clubs, on our schools, on our main street, on, on the traders in the main street. Mr Squires says the industry's closure would likely change the demographic of Orbost and the town would need to adjust to create new industries. A lot of people are going to have to either leave permanently or fly in, fly out type jobs. So there'll be a change in the demographics, a change in in the type of business, perhaps a little bit more reliance on tourism and hopefully we can develop some other small craft industries. But environmental groups insist the industry's closure is the right move for the future after decades of campaigning to end logging. Environmental Justice Australia's Dania Jacobs says the move is a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done to protect endangered species. The best way to halt the extinction crisis is to securely protect the habitat of endangered species in national parks. We're not there yet, but this will bring about the end of native forest logging, which is one of the biggest threats to our endangered species in Victoria. Miss Jacobs says she's concerned that native forest logging could continue under another name, rebranded as disaster or bushfire management and salvage operations. We're calling on the government to close these loopholes, ensure that disaster logging does not continue and take the place of native forest logging and to create national parks with traditional owner management at their core and assess our incredible native forest for World Heritage listing. That was Daniel Jacobs ending that report by Natasha Shapova about the uh, native logging uh, ceasing in uh, Victoria as of a couple of days ago. You're listening to The Country Hour and it's uh, heading up to news time. And uh, tomorrow, uh, of course, uh, we'll be uh, having the country hour as uh, in the lunch break in the cricket. So uh, join us in for that. It's one o'clock.